This is exactly right. Well, I've been a rabbi for on July 15th. It will be 35 years. So I've learned a lot. And um, I have managed with very hard work in my own therapy to begin at least to understand the effect the work has had on me. There is something in me that I can remember. The earliest I can recall is uh, fourth grade. There is something in me that just compels me to run toward the fire. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one person, one parent, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is For You When I'm Gone with our beloved guest, Rabbi Steve Leader. Rabbi Steve is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. After receiving his degree in writing and graduating cum laude from Northwestern University and spending time studying at Trinity College, Oxford University, Rabbi Leader received a master's degree in Hebrew letters in 1986 and rabbinical ordination in 1987 from Hebrew Union College. He is the author of five books, The Extraordinary Nature of Ordinary Things, More Money Than God, Living a Rich Life Without Losing Your Soul, The Bestsellers, More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, and The Beauty of What Remains. And his new book, which I am holding, is beautiful, and we're going to be talking about today in more depth, For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Newsweek Magazine twice named him one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America, but most important to Steve is being Betsy's husband and Aaron and Hannah's dad. And noteworthy, he is also a Jew who likes to fish. Rabbi Lee, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you. There aren't a lot of us. <laughs> okay, so I want to start with a, uh, uh, a few commonalities that we have. One is, I am a Jew who likes to fish as well. I share that. And secondly, a few things just bounced off the pages, a few memories just exploded when first I saw Wilshire Boulevard Temple, and then I saw your son, um, had uh, was a counselor at a camp in Malibu. So I have to tell you, I spent several memorable and meaningful summers at Camp Hess Kramer that were Yay. highly in my life. That's so, great. Uh, yeah. Just for people out there, it's a special, special place. Yes, indeed. So Rabbi, um, of all the things, trying to figure out where to start, I would like to start with asking you, what... When did you know you wanted to become a rabbi? And what were the influences that led you to this life's work? Well, um, uh, there are multiple reasons, and uh, some of them obvious, some of them less so. The obvious, I loved being on the pulpit from at my bar mitzvah. I just loved it. Mm. I loved being up there. Uh, my to explain my Torah portion, I wrote an anthology of my own poetry, so <laughs> I could inflict my poetry on people at the age of thirteen, and they had to sit there and listen. And uh, but you have to understand how I grew up to really see the attraction for me. I grew up in a uh, working class family. My dad and my uncle owned a junkyard called Leader Brothers Metal. I worked in that junkyard from the time I was five years old. Mm. Um, neither of my parents went to college. They got married at 17 and 18. They had five children before they were 30. Uh, they were not well-educated. My dad was very, very smart, but not well-educated. Mm -hmm. And um, 
also because there were five of us and my parents were not the most uh, evolved parents, almost every creative pursuit was summarily dismissed as a frivolous waste of time. If you weren't wa- if you weren't working until you were drop dead tired, you were wasting your life. That's sort of how I was raised. And there was disaster looming around every corner if you didn't work hard. Um, so if you wanted to be a writer, forget it. A musician, forget it. An actor, forget it. Forget it, forget it, forget it. Uh, and if you wanted to engage in any of those things, you better figure out how to do that on your own because we're not driving and we're not interested. The one exception was the synagogue. Mm. That was the one place they would drive me to. It was the one place that seemed to be an appropriate and acceptable, creative, expressive place. So for me, that you know, that's part of it. The other thing is when I was 14, I got arrested. Huh. Uh, I, got, I got arrested for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums from Target with mm. the other guys in my band. I played mm. drums in a rock and roll band at 14. And my parents woke up, by the way, they were on vacation in Florida at the time. So I had to call perfect, them. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. My older sister, Marilyn, had to, had to get me out of the hooskow. You know, it was, <laughs> it was rough. And, and so my parents, that was a wake up call for them. It's like, oh my goodness, he may be the fourth of our five children and may, we may be done parenting, but we should probably start paying attention to Steve because he, he could go down the wrong path here. And I was smoking weed every day in junior high school. I mean, I, I, you know, I was a typical teenager without much parental supervision. Mm-hmm. And my parents made the decision to send me to a, a Jewish summer camp in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, very similar to Hess Kramer, where, where you went and where I worked and still work as one of the rabbis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that camp experience changed my life forever. I loved everything about it, everything. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I, I loved like, the hippie counselors who were into the music I was into, and they had earth shoes and ponytails. And uh, I, I loved the pretty girls from Chicago with flowers in their hair on Shabbat, you know, it was the early 70s. And the thing that really shocked me was it was the first time in my life I saw rabbis who were young, who were in t-shirts and shorts and could throw a baseball. Mm. I, I had no idea. No idea because my rabbis at home were kind of old and scary. You know, they had dandruff and yellow teeth. <laughs> and they I, smelled. They sometimes they smelled, smelled too. Yeah, they smelled yeah, like yeah. little herring, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> and they were just weird and unapproachable. And, but these guys were I, it it just dawned on me. Wait a minute, you can mm. be a normal person and be a rabbi. How is it? because they also seem to know some kind of magical secret. Mm-hmm. They were both. Mm-hmm. They were mm-hmm. imminent and transcendent, to put it in religious terms. Mm-hmm. So that set me on a path at fifteen, and I never really diverged from that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father was not supportive of me becoming a rabbi. When I told him I wanted to become a rabbi, his response, this was my junior year of college, his response was, rabbis are beggars. Mm-hmm. Because that's the world he knew. Right, right. And and by the way, he was partially right. He just didn't understand the level at which some of that begging to, could take place and, and that a rabbi was actually Robin Hood in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I think all these things combined, and it was the place where I could be academic and I could be interested in the world of ideas, uh, because there was no other place for that in my childhood. Right, right. Wow, thanks for sharing that. I can see how that came together, and I can see how, even though he didn't like it, it was a more legitimate version of thinking and intellect and um, and a way, a path that at least had a path for people that he respected. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And hard, yes. really pretty hard to argue against. Yes. Uh, and later, <clears throat> he really came around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents used to uh, have a place in Palm Springs and I'm in Los Angeles and on Saturday mornings, they when I was preaching, they would get up really early 
drive in, come to services, listen to the sermon, and then we would have lunch and then they would drive back. Mm -hmm. And whether there were 200 people or 2000 people out there during that Mm -hmm. sermon, Mm -hmm. all I saw were two sets of teeth smiling. Mm -hmm. It was my Mm -hmm. mom and my dad. Nothing better than that. Nothing better than that. When, um, when I was seven, my maternal grandfather died and was a very important part of our family. And it was a very, it was a very significant loss, um, that I only could, you know, only understand so much at the time. And our rabbi was amazing. It was always there from the get go. And I, and I had flashes when I was reading, um, about some of your stories in this book, um, the, you know, the hundreds of thousands of times you have been there. And I, he was there for my grandmother. He was, who was not a formal, um, part of the congregation, but an extended part of the congregation for, um, my mom, all of her, her sisters, all of us. Mm-hmm. And I had this, this at seven, this very, this very little awareness at the time was, wow, if he's doing this for our family, he must do this for lots of families. And like, and how, how does he do this? And so fast forward, me being led into psychology for various reasons, um, and really passionate about the work. I am aware now, having done this for a long time with some gray, with lots of gray hair, of the load and the, um, at times, burden of caring and guiding through so much pain and loss and difficulty. And as I read your book, it feels like, in my role, it pales in comparison to the role of a rabbi because I, for the most part, have some time frames outside of crises. I have some time frames on my work. It seems to me that a rabbi's role, job, mission, like you just have to be there when life happens. And I'm, so I'm wondering about, so the question in all that is, so there's an acknowledgement, but the question is, what did you have no idea or not anticipate? And, and, and what have you, you know, learned from this role that you walk? Well, I've been a rabbi for, on July 15th, it will be 35 years. So I've learned a lot. And, um, I have managed with very hard work in my own therapy to begin at least to understand the effect the work has had on me. Mm. Um, there is something in me that I can remember the earliest I can recall is uh, fourth grade. There is something in me that just compels me to run toward the fire. Uh, I remember in fourth grade, there was a a girl in our classroom. It was uh, Mrs. Uh, Hollingsworth was the teacher. And she was on the spectrum. We didn't have that language then, but obviously Mm -hmm. now I can see it that she was on the spectrum. And I remember fantasizing about going to Miss Hollingsworth and saying, could I I just spend a few minutes with her? Because I, I think I could help her. I never did it, but that was the fantasy. So I've always had this helping gene. I don't know mm-hmm. why I grew up in a very harsh household as a child, not a lot of empathy. Uh, so maybe that's it. I don't know. You would know better mm-hmm. than I probably, but it would take us years. <laughs> so, and, and of course, we already talked about how the synagogue was my place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what I, and and I'm good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes my wife says to me, well, if you weren't so good at it, why don't you just suck at it once in a while and people will leave you alone? <laughs> <laughs> you can't. You can't do it. I, it's yeah. not in my DNA, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what what is the effect? There's a lot of role stress. Uh, there's a lot of tension between my inner family life and my obligations to a very large community. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a very painful 
experience not long ago that I write about in the book mm-hmm. where we were, we were sitting around the dinner table and a friend of ours who's a single parent was over and we were talking with her about the difficulties of being a single parent. And my wife, Betsy, just matter of factly said, well, I was a single parent. Mm-hmm. And it really shot through me. And I was in no position to dispute that. Mm-hmm. I was gone a lot. Yeah. Helping other families. You know, this is the role stress. This is the dichotomous tension. When you're when you serve a community, you you're the one preaching about the importance of family and you're leaving your family all the time to help other families. Yes. And yeah. you're carrying their you're a holding environment for their sadness, their stress, um, their anger. Mm-hmm. So one of the effects is it's embittering. Mm-hmm. It makes you very bitter. And I think clergy deal with that bitterness in different ways, but all of them dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, so that story that you told in the book about your wife saying that, um, that, that hit me right between the chest. And I, uh, told my wife about that, uh, last night when we were sitting down and, you know, um, always tell her about the, the guests that I'm going to interview and, um, about their life. And, you know, I really, uh, have fun getting into it before the show. And I said, and, and this is what, uh, rabbi said, and she said, you know, there were times when the kids were young that I felt like that too. And I said, I know that's why I'm telling you. Yeah. And, um, and it was that same juxtaposition of here, you know, the whole part of the work is to be present, to be mindful, to be aware, to be, to have work-life balance, to focus on your priorities. And I remember this time when, you know, also building a practice and um, yeah. making ends meet financially, you know, those roles as well. Oh, and yes. I remember, I remember, and my wife was very much a part of, has been always a part of the business. And I remember calling and saying, Hey, so-and-so called in crisis and I need to stay this extra hour. And then there was the next day. And I remember she said, well, what about us? What about us needing you too? Mm-hmm. And that was the first time because we were so aligned on, you know, building the business, building the practice, providing for our family. And it was such, it was I, not as much anymore as the irony, as you get older, you get wiser and you make different decisions, but um, it was hard. It's it, stressful. It was hard. And, it's, and it's also stressful because this is going to sound incredibly arrogant, but we're having a real conversation. So let's have a mm-hmm. real conversation. Okay. Do you know what a five tool player is in baseball? No, they're rare. A five tool player is a player who is really great at five different things. Hitting for power, meaning hits a lot of home runs. Hitting for average means they get on base a lot. They hit singles, doubles a lot too. They can run, they can throw, and they can catch, they can field. Okay, that's a very rare, it's not a unicorn, but it's Mm -hmm. pretty rare. I'm a five-tool rabbi. I'm really Mm -hmm. good at a lot of things. I'm good at helping people. I'm good at preaching. I'm good at fundraising. I have a good business head, you know. Um, So there are like four parts to being a rabbi. I'm good at all four of them but I can Mm -hmm. only be great at any two of them at any one time. So whatever I am doing, I am simultaneously ignoring or someone disappointing someone not getting to something. And it's constant. It's seven days a week. And it, it, that too can just really take its toll and, and embitter you. And I also, because of that bitterness, um, I was frustrated with my colleagues all the time. Mm-hmm. The other clergy who worked with me, we have a big staff. We have a 10,000 person congregation. So we have <laughs> yeah. you know, eight rabbis, three cantors. It's a big operation. We have the camps, we have schools. If Jews mm-hmm. had a mega church, we would be. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. And it's partly my doing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
But I was so, you know, like, why don't these people step up? Why can't they be great at the, at all these things? And why can't they be more like me? And it sounds very arrogant and to some degree it is, but it was also real frustration. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to realize that not everyone could be, would be, or wanted to be the kind of rabbi I was. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I remember my uh, psychiatrist, and we can get into that, what led me to getting help. But I remember my saying to my psychiatrist one day, I'm like a well-paid babysitter mm-hmm. with this mm-hmm. other clergy. And he said to me, well, babies aren't bad. They're just babies. <laughs> like, wow. you know, wow. yeah, just like accept these people for their own limitations and who they are. They're never going to be you and get over it. You know, and it, it, it helped me quite a bit. Babies aren't mm-hmm. bad. They're just babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I've, I've struggled hard. I, I, it, it did, it did cause a lot of dysfunction. And then there's this whole thing of being a symbolic exemplar. Right. Of not really being a person, but being a symbol of something for people. Right. A symbol of a religion. The, you know, so you're never really treated as a, just a person ever. You're a right. walking symbol. You're a vessel for their projections. Mm-hmm. And you have to somehow be willing to deal with that. And I remember also saying to my psychiatrist, I feel like the minute I step out my front door every day, I'm acting. I'm pretending. And he said, well, you are. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's okay. He said, well, yeah, people need you to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, right. Oh, <laughs> so the, these are things that took me many years to, to work through and discover what really led me to kind of examining my life was and I wrote one of my books about it, which is called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, was I was in a very frightening and serious car accident that caused injury to my spine. And I had debilitating, debilitating uh, chronic pain for months until I had surgery. And I did not do well post-surgery. And I was taking too many opioids and I was de- I got depressed. And- mm-hmm. I just felt like this is, I, I, there's something wrong with me Mm -hmm. and I sought help. And then years later, and it, and it did help. Yeah, It really did. I, I definitely started living a life more aligned where my professed values and lived values were better aligned and there was less dissonance. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sort of the next great advancement in my mental health and my, what I would say, uh, evolution as a rabbi in terms of being better aligned was uh, in January of 21, it became, I, I had helped someone privately who I believed deserved a second chance. Mm-hmm. And it became public. Many people did not believe this person deserved a second chance, but I had an inside view of it mm-hmm. and knew what this person had done to change his life. Most of it confidential, by the way. And so I decided to help this person achieve a second chance privately, but it became public. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, my name's on MSNBC and things like that. And some members of my community were really angry about it. And I had this panicked feeling that I was going to be canceled by my own community, the community that I had devoted my life to for, you know, at that point, 34 years. It wasn't a rational fear, but it was a real fear. Mm -hmm. And I, I have always had an underlying anxiety disorder. Because I grew up in a home where doom was around every corner uh, Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And I suppressed or subordinated that anxiety, locked it in the basement of my psyche with a brutal work ethic. That just, I was always working or sleeping. And that kept it at bay. Mm -hmm. 
But for some reason, this combination of steering the community through COVID and of being kind of outed for helping someone, it just flung the basement door of my psyche open and the anxiety mm-hmm. rushed out and gripped yeah. me and would not let go. I was paralyzed. Yeah. Uh, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. Yeah. And yeah. so I said, I, I shared it with my psychiatrist and I, and I said, I think I need to take some medication. I cannot mm-hmm. function. I'd lost 10 pounds mm-hmm. and I like to eat. And so I started on Zoloft and what happened was about six weeks later or something, I don't know, someone said to me, how are you doing, Steve? And I said, fine. And then I was like, what? Fine. Who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who, what? fine. Yeah. And I meant it. I was mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. <laughs> now you hear these stories all the time, but for me, yeah, this was a revelation yeah. and, and 125 milligrams of Zoloft. And I am not promoting Zoloft. I am not paid by Zoloft. I'm just telling you. Yeah. It, it changed my life because mm-hmm. I now function with a normal, what I think is a normal level an appropriate level of human anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. But I'm not paralyzed every day by fear that today I'm going to get fired. Uh, today I'm going to be exposed as a phony and a fraud. Today yep. I'm going to yep. be audited by the IRS. Today mm-hmm. I'm going to feel a lump, you know, mm-hmm. on my neck or whatever, you know, yeah. nightmare I could cook up. So this was um, the next great evolution. And I have been very open and very transparent about it. Mm-hmm. I even went on the Today Show and did a segment on it for World Mental Health Day because I really want to lead by example. And it has it, really yeah. made my life more beautiful. You have become known for, among many things that you become known for, is being transparent and being vulnerable uh, and making everyone think, well, are rabbis supposed to think like this? Are rabbis supposed to do this? Are rabbis supposed to have these experiences? And uh, it's so important for people to hear about your experiences, people who are respected, to know that everyone is human. Anxiety, depression, mental health issues are real. They are, they can be debilitating, and that we should not be ashamed. And I, um, I, yeah, because I, if we yeah. are, it's more pretending. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it With, creates more dissonance. Yes. Not yes. less. Not not living in authenticity. Not living in your own integrity. It actually creates the mental pain and distress that we're trying to get away from by yeah, not being that's authentic. Exactly, yes, and you're a pro, so you know this, but it's a vicious, vicious cycle mm-hmm. where whatever dysfunctional behavior you're engaged in to deal with the anxiety creates more anxiety and therefore more dysfunctional behavior and therefore more anxiety. And yeah. Yeah. you're you're trapped. And right. and you and all I can tell you is the you know, the Talmud, there's this beautiful line in the Talmud where the rabbis say, the prisoner cannot free himself. That's mm-hmm. a very powerful insight. Mm-hmm. And we have that, to reach yeah. out. We do. We do. I um, trained in, in my training when I was trained as a psychologist, and still a lot of people believe this. It's, you know, keep your keep your own stuff to yourself. You know, you focus on your clients, yeah. your patients, whatever you want. Right. Be professional. and and I struggled with that. Um, when I was in my mid to late twenties, I had a, for a variety of crashing perfect storms as you had, I ended up with debilitating anxiety, which led into depression, which led into not sleeping and not eating. And, uh, really at the end of graduate school with the questioning of everything. And my psychologist who I sought at the time, I got so lucky, just looked in a phone book. Who's, who's near me. I mean, just became a life mentor. Um, and he's like, Dan, you need, I, I think you need to try medicine. Like this is, this can open things up. It's not the answer, but it can change the neurochemistry enough for you to be able to get to the next. And I fought it and fought it. And he said, Dan, what do you recommend your clients? 
would you, would you, what would you recommend? And, you know, I couldn't not look in the mirror. I finally gave in. It helped me tremendously. I think a similar experience that you had. And I finally started to talk. It took me a while. It took me, I had to be in the field long enough to have enough confidence that when I had clients who were questioning it, teenager to adults and needed it. Yep. And I started to tell my story. That was the single most helpful thing that they could have heard. None of the fancy psychology mumbo jumbo or great insights. It was that here's someone that I'm working with who I trust, who's had this experience. And if he could go through it, I can give it a shot. Yeah, I have found it has deepened people's respect for me, Mm -hmm. not diminished Mm -hmm. it. And Mm -hmm. so many people, I'm telling you, last night, last night, I was with someone who asked to see me and we met for a drink who would never have shared what he shared with me had I not Mm -hmm. been open about my own mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. And now I'm able to make a good referral and, and get this person some help. So I, now the tricky thing I think for both of us in our roles Mm -hmm. is for this transparency never to cross over the line to becoming sort of gratuitous or a kind of, you know, trick to, to be interesting or to garner empathy or attention, you know, that that's when it, when it becomes your shtick, that's a problem because that's just one more piece of kabuki in your life. Right. And, and so that's for me, the tricky part. So I I don't get up there and hemorrhage all over the place all the time because it's not appropriate. Right. But, but when, properly and honestly shared yeah. it it can be very very helpful to me right. and and to others right and with that awareness of everything you're talking about the boundaries the awareness of am i sharing this for me or am i sharing this for them and the what i'm trying to accomplish in this interaction and exactly. yes uh, some and what people i'm have trying to be more than anything is an example a good example right that's all right right that's all I can do mm-hmm. is set a good example. You know, there's this Buddhist saying, which I love, which is tend the part of the garden you can reach. I wrote that down because I wanted Did to you? talk right. about that with you. That, I love that. Yeah. That's all, that's all I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's more difficult in my world than yours because I can't say at the end of 50 minutes, we'll talk more about this next week. Right. And right. now this is going to sound kind of crazy, maybe, or harsh, but I think it's also a part of it is first of all, that all the other aspects of running a big institution and how much time that takes Mm -hmm. and and especially the fundraising, which is enormously time consuming and difficult, but clergy are the front line of mental health care workers because people will come to us first because in their mind, I don't need to be meant. I don't need to have a mental health problem to talk to the rabbi. When in fact, that's the reason they're coming to the rabbi, but it's, there's camouflage, you know, it's a fig leaf. And, uh, also the rabbi is free. There's no financial commitment. And, and, you know, uh, sometimes in my moments of bitterness, which still exist, although far more rare than they used to be, I would say to Betsy, you know something, if she had to pay me $250 an hour, she wouldn't call me. (laughs) it's true a lot of the time yeah it's true (laughs) so i I don't have those those boundaries yeah yeah the expectations are unlimited and by the way i think they have every right to their expectations of me Mm -hmm. they really do i am the rabbi yeah so that's that's more of the of the struggle so if this makes you feel any better, something I just learned, something that you get to do that I am unable to do, um, is you can go out and have a drink while you're counseling. That still uh, is, is not considered an appropriate thing within the uh, the counseling office, right? <laughs> I find it, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I find, by the way, it's not so much about the alcohol as, yeah. as having such a casual environment and it's part of the fig leaf. Yeah. Oh, I'm just meeting the rabbi for, for a drink because right. he doesn't have any time until seven o'clock. Right. Which is right. also true. Yeah. You know, right. so almost, almost every weekday, there's a hotel down the street from where I live. Thank God for COVID because everybody now accepts the fact that nobody wants to go anywhere. And like, it, you want to see me at seven o'clock at night, dude, I will drive five minutes. 
Mm-hmm. That's it. And so, yeah. and people come to the hotel and it's, they, we sit outside, we have a drink, we talk. And so it's more camouflage also. Right. 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 It's, right. it's just, so it, it works pretty well, but yeah, I would not want to see my psychiatrist sipping on a scotch at three o'clock on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's what, where this, where your work blends with some of the mental community mental health models is you know in lots of rural america and true community mental health the individuals the practitioners are part of the community and there aren't those boundaries and 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 one has to be very aware of those boundaries but there's so much to be said by having a trusted member of your community that you feel understands you understands where you come from and you can just sit down and talk which removes a lot of the stigma that mo- and, and barriers that unfortunately most people yes. do experience. And who you know has mm-hmm. had his own or her own yeah. life challenges mm-hmm. and been honest about that mm-hmm. to a degree. Of course, right. I pull some punches, but to a right. fairly mm-hmm. large degree, I tell the truth. Mm-hmm. I, uh, transitioning related to that to this beautiful book um i uh, i used it in a session earlier this week with this wonderful client of mine who i've known for a while mid-20s and he suffers um and has suffered for a long time from anxiety the primary thing uh, that he has to deal with and um we're talking about his anxiety and I had shared some of my own experiences with anxiety over time with him. And your book was sitting right there near me on my desk. And I have just been reading and thinking and processing and like, how, you know, what do I want to write to my kids? And, uh, I told him, I said, I grabbed your book and I said, here's, here's, here's a book. I'm talking to rabbi soon. So I've been really diving into this. And the first question of the 12 questions is what do you regret? And I said, I want to, I would like, in this conversation, I'd like to share with you what has hit me really hard as someone who is more than twice your age. I said, my, at this point, I think my largest regret is spending so much time worrying about things that either never happened or if they did, were not a big deal. Yeah, catastrophizing. Yes, and there was just silence and and he i could see he was just absorbing it and nodding his head and so this wisdom so let's talk about the wisdom the intention of the wisdom to be passed down in a legacy letter from a parent to a child okay and why now not later yes yes you know uh uh, last week, a journalist asked me one of those tricky, you know, cute journalist questions. If you had to summarize your book in two words, what would they be? And I answered immediately. I, it just came to me right away. And I said, the two words would be, don't wait. And before I get to sort of the, the point of the book structurally and, and in terms of message, one of the big surprises to me is how well the book is selling to to millennials. Hmm. Because most people think of this, well, this must be a book for elderly people who are going to die and they want to write down their life lessons for their loved ones when they're gone. No. I mean, yes and no. It is, millennials have gravitated to it, partly because of a very, uh, um, very big podcast for millennials that, that I was interviewed on that exposed them to the book. Uh, millennials, I have a 30 and 33 year old. They're asking these same questions. What matters? How mm-hmm. do I want to live my life? If I go down this path, what does it mean? If I don't, what does it mean? What is love? You know, what is a good person? What do I want people to say about me at the end of my life? And am I actually living that way? It's never too soon to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. And these questions, there are 12 questions in the book. The order is absolutely deliberate and strategic. And when my editor asked me, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? They just unfold a person. And I, I jokingly said 35 years and 15 minutes. 
Because these are the questions, Dan, I have been asking for 35 years when I gather families together to talk about a loved one who's died. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying to get my arms around who this person was and to help the family and to help me prepare to write a eulogy. And what I'm trying to get at are not the facts of a person's life. Because the facts of our life is our obituary. It tells Mm -hmm. you nothing, really. The fact that I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1960 and went to Aquila Elementary School, what is that? That's a fact, but it doesn't tell you anything about me. Mm -mm. Now, the truth that I grew up in a stressful home and even as a little boy, I would go out on my canoe on the Minnehaha Creek that ran through my backyard to find solace in solitude and nature. And I've done that my entire life. Now you're learning something. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting to the truth of Steve. So these questions are all about the truths of our lives. And, and the way the book works is I write an essay for each chapter about why this question matters. And my view, my answer to that question And then I curated the answers of about 30 or 40 other people, a very diverse group of people, and put them in each chapter. And I'm talking about 20 to 80 years old, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, um, billionaires, and one person who changes adult diapers in a nursing home for a living, People who went to jail, people have a child that went to jail, uh, people who are super famous. Everyone's anonymous in the book, but I'm telling you people who are very famous celebrities for good things and one person who was famous for something very bad and all kinds of people mm-hmm. <clears throat> answered these questions. And then I kind of prompt the reader to think about this for him or herself. And. By the end of this journey through the book, ideally, you'll have two things. One, everything you need to share your story with your loved ones for when you're gone. Because the irony of death, the irony of death is for most people, our last word to our loved ones after we die comes in the form of an estate plan and a will, which is a dry legalese boilerplate document written by someone who barely knows us. And it's all about who gets what and how stuff. much and when. The stuff. All stuff. Yeah. It, it is like be- making that your last word to your loved ones. I tell people all the time, it's like handing them a picture of food. It is not going to nourish them. It's not going to comfort them. It's not going to sustain them or warm them. That's not what they need or want. One of the saddest memories of my life. Yes. One of the, one of the saddest memories of my life was after my dad died, walking down into the basement of my parents' home and seeing all of his stuff in a heap on the basement floor. Nobody wanted it. The goodwill didn't want it. And yet we somehow fool ourselves into believing that the material will express the emotional and the spiritual, and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So the idea of an ethical will has been around since the 11th century, Italy and France. And it, it's the idea of, of, bequeathing our non-material wealth and legacy to our loved ones for when we're gone. Our our accrued wisdom, what we've learned from our flaws and our mistakes, what, what our hopes are for them, our blessings for them, our guidance for them. That's what people want. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's never too soon to create this for two reasons. A, you never know. I had no idea my last conversation with my dad was my last conversation with my dad. Mm-hmm. He had Alzheimer's for 10 years. One visit, we could speak to each other. And the next visit, we never really spoke again. 
-hmm. he lost the ability. Mm -hmm. You never really know. Mm -hmm. But there's, it's more important than that because this is actually not a book about death. Because when you go through this book, what you have at the end is kind of an internal MRI of your life. And you can hold it up to the light and ask yourself, okay, these are the things I say I believe. This is what I say is my truth. Am I living it? Mm -hmm. Or am I pretending? Mm-hmm. It's it's an opportunity to really think about whether our professed values and lived values are in alignment. And you know, as a therapist, the unhappiest people you will ever meet are people whose professed values and lived values are radically divergent because they're mm-hmm. leading a double life and it's mm-hmm. incredibly painful. Yes. And the the most at peace and content people I know are people whose lived and professed values are well aligned. None of us are perfect. We all Mm -hmm. fall short of our ideals. We all get seduced and distracted by, you know, we all get spun around by the centrifuge of life. Mm -hmm. But the more aligned we are, Mm -hmm. the less conflict in our soul. And, and, and the so courage, this book is about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And the courage, the courage it takes to look at yourself in the mirror or through your ethical will to see where you want to make those changes, right? To admit this is all about the show. It's about awareness, right? And the courage is with awareness and the wisdom that yep. comes with awareness. And then knowing that as long as we are still alive, we have an opportunity to make many assorted changes in our life, small or large. That's why the first question, the first question is, what do you regret? Yeah. yeah. And, and you, you would think, well, why ask a question about the past if this is all about the legacy? And really, regret is not at all about the past. Mm-hmm. I, I often say to people, I've given up all hope of a better past. I find that <laughs> very helpful when people need to be just quickly triaged because mm-hmm. they're so steeped in shame and regret and remorse. Mm-hmm. And I just say, look, I've given up all hope of a better past. What are we going to do with all of this regret to have a different future? Mm-hmm. And what I learned in the regret chapter, which surprised me a little, because this you have this disparate group, but then you have these common denominators, which means, oh, this is part of the human experience for most of us, if not all of us. What I found is that what most people regret most is not something they did but something they mm-hmm. didn't do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the words they didn't speak, the opportunity they didn't grasp, the help they waited too long to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, in, there are two kinds of sins, if I can put it in religious terms. There are sins of commission, the things we do, mm-hmm. and there are sins of omission, the things we didn't do, failed to do should have done, should have mm-hmm. said, right. the time we should have shown up mm-hmm. and, and let fear of some kind prevent us from doing it. And that's where these que- a question like that becomes so mm-hmm. instructive. It's also first because to answer it honestly requires that we open ourselves up, that we, that we approach our 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 self evaluation with humility and transparency and honesty and 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 with real open heartedness. So that that's why it's first. You know, each one is in its order for its own reason. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned from my from my own parenting and through my work um, with parents is kids don't really learn from our lectures. Uh, those are more for us. Kids learn from our experiences. And if you start to talk about your own life experiences and what the ones that worked out well, the ones that did not work out well, they are so engrossed and so and listening. And and this letter 
this ethical will is an opportunity to do it. And I saw from several people or a few people in the book as examples and updating it as life goes on (laughs) with more wisdom that's learned. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote an ethical will to my children in my forties and I wrote one at 60 and they're different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I published both of them and, and my kids have read them. I don't think you should wait to share it with your kids at all. Mm-hmm. This is not mm-hmm. something you want to withhold until you're dead. Right. What's the, I mean, there's a point in, in them having it when you're gone, but there's no point in them not having it while you're alive. Mm-hmm. These things mm-hmm. aren't meant to be surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like, do you know about this thing called a gratitude visit? Um, no. The guy no. who founded no. the school of positive psychology, Martin. Is oh, Seligman. Seligman, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's yeah. at Penn. I think he's at Penn, yes. right? Or he taught, yes. he taught at Penn. So yeah. he he had this beautiful idea to help treat his uh, patients with depression. He would ask them to write a three hundred word letter thanking someone who had made a difference in their life in their life that they had never really properly thanked before or openly mm-hmm. thanked before, mm-hmm. and then unannounced, they go to see the person, knock on the door, the door opens, and they read the letter. And what he discovered was that by, first of all, by the end of the letter, everybody's weeping. Mm -hmm. And that the patient was less depressed one week, one month later. Wow. Right. So there's something about saying these things, articulating Mm -hmm. these things Mm -hmm. to our loved ones Mm -hmm. that is incredibly healing, fulfilling, Mm -hmm. powerful, even the difficult things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wish I had. I'm sorry I did. I'm sorry Mm -hmm. I didn't. These are powerful things to share. You know, one of the things in my ethical will, which seems insignificant, but has really stuck with my kids is I I talk in my ethical will about how I used to love to dance, but I don't dance Mm -hmm. anymore because Mm -hmm. I've become a public figure and I feel like a spectacle and I'm being watched and, and what a shame that is. And 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 it, how, how much fun it's robbed me of and i i it's really stuck with my kids for a few reasons one they it gave them a little insight into fairly or unfairly well or poorly i've carried the weight of being um a symbol or a public figure in some way but also as a lesson about not allowing yourself to be robbed of the joy from, of the things you love mm-hmm. because of what other people might think. Mm-hmm. And that story, to your point, Dan, has instructed my kids so much better about authenticity than any <laughs> lecture from their dad of live your truth and yeah. you know, blah, yeah. blah, 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 you know. It, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So, powerful. You know, powerful. Yeah. 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 At the I, end of the uh, day, yeah. this is about yeah. telling a story. It is. It's about telling a story. It's about telling your own authentic story. It's about a story that doesn't have to be perfect. It's a story that's going to hopefully change as you change. And it's a, it, it really honors the fragility of, of life in the sense, you know, people who listen to the show, really want to be growing more self-aware, you know, really just looking at themselves in an honest way. And I want to, I want to read as we're moving to the parent footprint moment question next, I want to read the, what you have cited at the beginning of the introduction, because I want to, I want people to just reach out for this book because those words are so powerful and are mine and my wife's experiences. We talk about this all the time. And here it goes. This is a, uh, a quote from uh, Jonathan Saffron 
Foyer. 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 No baby knows when the nipple is pulled from his mouth for the last time. No child knows when he last calls his mother mama. No small boy knows when the book has closed on the last bedtime story that will ever be read to him. No boy knows when the water drains from the last bath he will ever take with his brother. No mother knows she is hearing the word mama for the last time. No father knows when the book has closed on the last bedtime story he will ever read. It's, it's just wait. so powerful. Yeah. Don't yeah. wait. Regardless, everyone, of your kids' ages, there's a great country song, there's a last time for everything, and you just never know when it's going to be. So the time is now, as Rabbi is saying, the time, do it now. Rabbi, mm-hmm. parent footprint moment question. Ready? Yep. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. I remember it distinctly. It was, my son is 33, so this was about 31 years ago. And we were visiting my parents at their condo in Palm Springs, and my dad and I took our son Aaron to the park to play a little bit. And Aaron was playing and being a two-year-old, and you know, I was trying to get him to do or not do something. And <clears throat> at some point, my dad said, he's not listening to you. And I kind of let it roll off. And then again, he's not listening to you. And the third time he said it, he's not lit. In other words, your parenting technique is not going to get the job done. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a dad who, when I was little, said to us, I don't want to have to hit you because if I do, I break bones. Hmm. Wow. And you never quite knew mm-hmm. if he meant it or not. And after that third, he's not listening. You know, <clears throat> I, this was one of only three times I stood up to my father in my life. I looked at my dad and I said, I heard you the first time. I am not raising my son to fear me. Mm. And I didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm. That is changing the complete course of family transition, right? Of, 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 um, of trauma, right? Uh, of of family culture. I mean, it, it's, it's a 180. Yeah. And like most pivots, there was some loss involved in that, of course. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, I think parenting is a swing of the pendulum generation to generation in many ways. And in mm-hmm. some ways it's not. But I think it was as important for me to stand up to my father in that moment as it was to protect my son. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> it did not fundamentally alter my relationship with my father, but it created an important boundary. Mm-hmm. Rabbi, thank you for uh, sharing yourself with all of us as you are doing continually. Um, and for modeling authenticity that's not that's not perfect that's not um it's not ever done it's always a work in progress and um for showing all of us that humanity thank you and and thank you for giving not only me but others the opportunity to have a real conversation with you tell everyone where they can get this beautiful book and everyone as i'm holding it it is so user-friendly and so it just speaks to you 
it's it's not a chore. It's uh, you you'll see it as an opportunity that you won't be able to. You look forward to picking it up every time you put it down. So where can people find this? Uh, you, the book is called "For You When I Am Gone: Twelve Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story." You can get it wherever you buy books. Um, any you know online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Many bookstores have it now, local bookstores, uh, and or through my website, which is steveleader, L-E-D-E-R.com, or my Instagram, which is at steve underscore leader. Uh, you can you can access the book in a lot of ways, and it's Kindle, hardcover, and audio. And I recorded the audio because I can't stand other people reading something I've written. They can't get the rhythm the, the mm-hmm. down to the way I intended it. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I, I really hope it it encourages lots of people to to think about their lives and to share their story. It is, and it uh, it has with me. I've already shared verbally with my family what I've learned and what I've been thinking about, and I will be uh, putting it down on paper. That's great. That's uh, a win, and, and not waiting, not waiting, wait, and that's a win <laughs> yeah. for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Thank you again, Dan. Yeah. Thanks, Rabbi. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. Please share this show with everyone. You know how impactful these words are, this book is, and how it can literally change people's lives, current and future. Thank you for your five-star reviews, for bringing people to our wonderful community. You know what I'm going to ask you to do, two things. Try to be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by Pro Tunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.